You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. got a seat. You need to move in some in the rows, make room for your neighbor if you see someone come in late. Coming to church, coming to church late is better than not coming to church at all. So I just want to say that to you. Open your Bibles if you have them to Zechariah chapter 14. I'm going to give you a minute because I realize when I say Zechariah, you probably have that feeling of, I don't know where that is. Um, it's one of the minor prophets. It's going to be in the latter part of the Old Testament. And if you don't want to go there, if you just want to wait, we're going to have some of the verses up on the screen for you. I'm a little bit of a skeptic myself. I like to see it in print to make sure someone's, uh, no one's trying to pull something over my head. But uh, Zechariah 14, I want to give you a warning up front on this, um, that this is a passage that might be particularly difficult for you if you are a survivor of sexual abuse. Uh, this passage is a, that we're going to read, it's a foretelling of the second coming of Christ. Before he returns, the Bible tells us a lot of bad things are going to happen. And one of the things that's described in this passage, it's imagery that's used to describe the state of God's people and the assault that is put against them by the surrounding nations. One of the things that's mentioned is rape. And whether this is being used literally or metaphorically, it is in the text, and so I want to prep you for that. We are a church that desires to be a safe place for sexual uh, survivors, and um, I'm usually, as you know, I, I'm all about letting the text speak for itself. I'm never going to sugarcoat it for you. I'm never going to apologize for what it says, but uh, there are things sometimes that I think are just in the gesture of kindness worth mentioning up front before we read them. And so I do hope it to be a wise thing and hopefully a, a gesture of kindness to you survivors here who we love and appreciate you being here and hope that you find this place safe uh, to prep you before I read it. So with that said, let's go to the text. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Now, pause there for a moment. Let's just unpack it a little by little. It says, a day is coming, the prophet says, when the people of God will be divided. They will be separated. They will be divided up. God says, I will gather all of the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Jerusalem is just representative of the people of God here. And this is almost certainly describing the same thing that Revelation chapter 16 describes. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14, they talk about these frog-like creatures that come out of the Nile, and they are demonic spirits, John says, who will go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then in verse 16, it says, and they, talking about the demonic spirits, assembled them, talking about the nations, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon, not the cult classic movie from the late 90s. <laughs> it is a cult classic, don't argue, it's great. <laughs> this is a real place near Megiddo, somewhere in uh, geographically near Jerusalem. And it says, this will be a day when all the nations will gather against Jerusalem. 
This is exactly what Zechariah 14.2 is describing. God says, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This day of Armageddon will be an end times assault on the people of God, unlike anything the church has ever seen before. We've seen persecution. We've seen it a lot. We talked about it last week. It's one of the things that fanned a flame and, and fueled the, uh, the, the, the explosion of the gospel in the early church. So we've seen persecution, but this will be something rather different, unlike anything that we have ever seen before. If you keep reading, the rest of verse 2, it says, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then look at verses 3 through 7. Then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other southward. And then you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal." And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all of the holy ones with him. And then look at verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Zechariah is describing some key details that are going to happen on or around the second advent of Jesus. He says it's going to be a unique day, a day uh, that only the, the Lord knows about. Only the Lord knows which day this is, which is very similar to what Jesus said, isn't it? Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, he says, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. It's a unique day, one that only God knows, and this day will follow massive tribulation for the people of God. The people of God will be attacked by God's enemies, all of whom are under a demonic spell. Many will be taken captive. Many will be persecuted. Many will die. It will be a very hard time to live as a Christian. And right when it seems like all is lost, it says that half the people have been taken away, kind of this idea of exile again, which is a a horrible theme throughout the Old Testament that the Jewish readers of this would have instantly connected with. It says, right when all is lost, the Lord will come, and all the holy ones or angels will come with him. Christ will come in the clouds of heaven, and the angels will be with him, and he will judge and destroy Satan and death and ultimately make all things new. That is exciting, is it not? And that is what we are here to discuss this morning in our final week of our Advent series. For the first five weeks, we've emphasized the first Advent, the birth of Jesus. In week one, we talked about how the world was riddled with darkness. It was in desperate need of, of light. And God, remember, promised a redeemer. We read Isaiah 59, 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. For those who repent, there will be a redeemer that will come for those people. And then we talked in week two about how that promised redeemer came And his name is Jesus. And he came not only as the son of God, which is a divine title, but he also came as a son of man, not a human title, but actually a second divine title, one that points to Daniel chapter 7 and the second coming. 
Week three, we talked about the zeal of Zechariah and the meekness of Mary and the joy of John. All of that was in Luke chapter one. And then week four, we kept reading into Luke two. And we talked about how the Lord was born. And on that same night, some of the most unlikely people in the world were called. They were ambushed by God through a host of angels and called to go and see the Messiah. Shepherds in the field, untrustworthy, thieves, liars, people who, who had nothing to do with society because society had nothing to do with them. They're the ones God chose to go and see the Savior born on that exact night. And then last week, we talked about how the light of Christ that came into the world began as a a small flame, but over the course of the New Testament turns into this burning hot wildfire, and how that wildfire was sparked by the resurrection, it was fanned into flame by the Holy Spirit, and ultimately fueled by persecution. This morning, we're going to turn away from the past and look to the future. We spent the first five weeks talking about what has already happened with regard to Jesus and the first advent. Now this morning, we look to the promise of the second advent. And what I want to do is really connect with what this future advent means for us. So, so often, this is is kind of um, a trap that preachers often fall into. So often, sermons that focus on the second coming of Jesus, typically focus on the technical aspects of what we call eschatology, the study of the last things. And so what you end up with is a sermon that's all about the thousand-year millennial reign and the tribulation and the rapture, and there's some left-behind quotes in there, right? And, And at the end, people walk out of here more confused than they were when they came in. Because we use a bunch of big words and we talk about a lot of really difficult concepts and then you're going, I don't know where I fall in any of this. I I, I think uh, it was James that used to say with regard to the millennial reign, he's a pan-millennialist. In the end, everything just pans out, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the proposition I'm going to set for you this morning. And what I want to do is, as as tempting as it is to jump into that technical stuff, we actually did that on Wednesday, by the way, for all seven of you that showed up. All my normals just decided to take a week off, and so we took a week off as well. We talked about the technical aspects of eschatology. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out. We're going to bypass all that this morning, and we're going to simply think about what the second advent means for us just in a day-to-day basis. Why does this matter, right? Why does the second coming of Christ really matter for us on the day-to-day? I understand why why it matters in the future, but why does it matter for me right now? How should we live, in other words, with the second coming in mind? I've titled the message this morning, Living with the End in Mind. Living with the End in Mind. And I I want us to think about how we ought to live our lives and conduct ourselves towards other individuals, knowing that there is an end to all of this that will eventually come to pass. So let's talk about it. First, I want to submit to you that we must be patient in suffering patient in suffering. How we live with the end in mind involves patience on our part. I read it a moment ago, but I want to read it again uh, because I I think it, it bears a lot of weight to this point. Matthew 24, verse 36. This is what I read at the welcome. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only, He's talking about the second coming when Jesus will return. And he says, no one knows except for the Father. Not even the Son knows. Only the Father. There's this fun trend uh, amongst uh, preachers, particularly charismatic is, is where it tends to go, charismatic preachers, who try to predict the very moment when Jesus will return. There's books written on it. 
you know, what to look out for, what signs to pay attention to. This is how you're going to know that Jesus is coming back. Millions of dollars have been made selling books on these kinds of things. I've mentioned this before, but it's too funny not to mention again uh, because I, I just, I will do it every time we talk about this. Uh, January 1st, 1988, uh, a man by the name of Edgar Wisenant published a book, wildly popular book, called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And he makes his predictions based on the 70 weeks in Daniel and the 42 months in Ezekiel. It was wildly popular. I mean, it, it, people were all about it, right? I mean, this guy has unlocked the biblical code. He's figured it out. He knows when Jesus is coming back. And of course, if, if you were around in 1988, one thing you'll remember is Jesus, in fact, did not come back. Um, and so that following year, he wrote 89 reasons why the rapture will be in 1989. And I kid you not, the 89th reason, it didn't happen in 1988. He continued to write these rapture report books up through, best I can tell, 1997. My question is, who was buying these books? Who, who after 1988, thought we should keep listening to this guy? He has an inside track. But here's the deal. It's still happening today. As recently as, I think, 2014, uh, John Hagee wrote a book, Four Blood Moons. Something is about to change. I mean, I'll give him that. It's an epic title, right? It makes you feel like, well, what is about to change? In it, he predicts a series of four blood moons, which is actually ironic because he doesn't predict them at all. NASA told us when they would happen. But he says that the last one in September of 2015 is going to actually bring into fulfillment something that the minor prophet Joel predicted. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. He says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. John Hagee's like, huh? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Of course, again, you may or may not be aware of this, but the Lord did not come in 2015. But, but understand what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows when it will happen. Connect with what he says. Not even the Son of God knows when it will happen. He says that. Not the angels, not even the Son, but the Father only. Now, I'm just going to put this out there as a, a proposition or a wager to you. If Jesus the Son doesn't know, I'm thinking Wizenant and Hagee probably have no idea. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'll take those odds, right? I, I think they're probably not on to something. If Jesus doesn't know, I'm certain they don't as well. So what that means then is, is this, we have to be patient. But, but it's hard though, isn't it? It's hard to be patient when you're waiting for something like this to happen. I totally understand the obsession for, for wanting Jesus to return and wanting to look for the signs and wanting to know exactly when it's going to happen because we want it to happen now. We want it to happen right now. The world is a really awful place. It's a sad and dark world, especially for Christians. But this is also to be expected, isn't it? Isn't this what Jesus said? Jesus didn't exactly make it sound like things were going to be awesome for us while we were waiting. Let me just give you some examples. Jesus in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you 
because of me. That's an important phrase, by the way. If people are persecuting you because you're being an idiot, I don't feel bad for you. And, and you're not blessed. Jesus says persecution because of me. Okay? Just so we're clear there. But this is one of the things that he sets forth in the Beatitudes for us. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. He says, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He's saying we suffer so that we might become more like Christ. That's why this happens, so that we would become more like Jesus. Peter assumes that we'll suffer as well, 1 Peter 5, 10. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, talked about it. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, one of our least favorite passages in all of the Bible. (laughs) Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying here that you ought to consider suffering a good thing because suffering is actually the means by which God perfects you. It's the, it's the means by which the vehicle by which God makes you more like Jesus. Listen to me. God wants to perfect you. He wants to make you more like Jesus. He wants to bring you into conformity, into the image of his son, Christ. That's his goal for you. People ask all the time, like, what's God's plan for me? It's to make you like Christ. It's to make you like Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, there it is, to the image of his son. God has predestined you, and I know some of you don't like that word, but you're going to have to deal with it because it's in the Bible, all right? God has predestined you for what? To be conformed into the image of his son. Now, what does that mean? It means that his plan all along has been to shape you and mold you to become more like Jesus. Now, can we agree on that? Is that controversial to any of you? I feel like this is like sanctification 101, all right? So, okay, here's what that means then. It means that we can evaluate most of the things that Jesus did while he was living. Not all of them. Some of them are are divine rights and divine actions that we're not intended to to replicate. We're not here to die on behalf of the world, okay? Uh, That's a son of God thing. But we we can evaluate most of the things that Jesus does, and we can rightly say that God wants us to do those same things that we would be like him. To imitate him. Paul uses that imagery. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, okay? So for example, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of heaven and God wants us to do the same. Amen? Jesus gave grace to broken, sinful people and God wants us to do the same. Jesus proclaimed truth to power, to people in in positions of power and God wants us to do the same. Jesus was wholly dependent upon the Father throughout his earthly ministry. And God wants us to do the same. Are, are, we, are we all on track so far? Amen, right? Yeah, no problems with this. We'll amen this all day long. But let's see how far we can take it. Jesus was arrested for proclaiming the gospel. 
And God wants us to do the same. Jesus was beaten for proclaiming the gospel until his skin was separated from his body. God wants us to do the same. He was mocked and spit upon for proclaiming the kingdom of heaven to evil religious people, and God wants us to do the same. He was crucified. He had nails pushed through his hands and through his feet, and he wants us to do the same. Isn't that what he said, by the way? Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We like to spiritualize that. Yeah, he wants me to, metaphorically speaking, you know, <laughs> crucify myself. You know, I crucify myself when I, when I choose Diet Coke over regular Coke. <laughs> when I read my Bible for five minutes instead of watching TV. I'm, I'm, I'm dying to myself. No, that's, I don't think that's what Jesus said. I don't think that's what he meant when he said it. He said, who will, he who will take up his cross and die for my sake will find his life. These are hard words. But listen to me. If God wants to make you, to conform you to the image of the Savior, that means all of the image of the Savior, even the suffering Savior. Let me give you a truth. Sanctification will always include suffering. Sanctification will always include suffering. It will always include some measure of of not getting what you want and paying for it. And so listen to me, rather than running from that reality, rather than getting angry over it, what if we saw suffering as a privilege? What if we saw suffering as something to rejoice in? Now that may sound crazy to you, but that's exactly what the apostles thought. Acts chapter five, they're arrested and they're beaten by the religious authorities and they are told, never speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41 and 42, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced because they got their butts kicked for being bold, outspoken Christians. Why? Because they understood to suffer is to become like Christ. We have to be patient in light of the second advent of Jesus, even in the face of suffering, knowing that it's actually a helpful thing for us, individually and corporately as a body. We become more like the Lord we worship and serve when we suffer like him. Secondly, we must be prudent in our deeds. Prudent in our deeds. What does it mean to be prudent? It means to act with or to show care and thought for the future. It means to act, in other words, not only with the present in mind, but with the future in mind as well. From the Christian perspective, it means to live your life and to make choices and decisions based on the reality that those choices will one day be judged. Revelation chapter 20, Christ defeats Satan once and for all. He throws him into the lake of fire. Verse 10, it's pretty grim. It says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they, were, uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. By the way, as a, as a younger man, when I would read these like fire and sulfur passages, I always think that hell's gonna smell really bad. <laughs> you know, like sulfur smell. I, 
which I think tracks, right? Hell's a terrible place. It would make sense that it would affect all of your senses, not just a few of them. Smells really terrible. And then look what follows, verses 11 and 12. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and judgment, it says, follows. Now, just as a side note, we talk often around here about how at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, right? It doesn't matter if you are, are someone important or just a, a regular old person. At the foot of the cross, no one stands above the other because we are all on level ground when it comes to grace. We're also on level ground, I want you to get this, at judgment. He says both great and small stand before the throne as the books are open. That means that there will be kings, there will be presidents, there will be rulers, there will be people in power, and they will be shoulder to shoulder with the homeless, the nameless, the poor, and the regular old average Joe. No privilege, no power, no special anything. Everyone stands shoulder to shoulder as they await judgment. Verse 12 continues. It says, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And pay attention here because this phrase is very important. According to what they had done. Now, I want to preface this by saying very clearly here. Okay, so hear these words. We believe that you are saved by grace through faith, that it is a gift of God and nothing else, okay? Uh, that means that you cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot uh, do more good things than you did bad things in hopes that God might go, yeah, he was mostly good. That's not how it works. It is by grace through faith, only the blood of Jesus gets you in, and it is his work, not your work. Amen. If that's the case then, here's what we have to figure out. What does verses 11 and 12 of Revelation 20 mean? Because either it means that you can lose your salvation based on what you do, which is contradictory to the whole rest of the New Testament basically, or it means that the kind of judgment that you are going to experience as you stand before the throne and the books are open is not a judgment that is salvific. In other words, it's not a judgment that leads to hell or heaven. It's not an eternally uh, determining judgment. My reading, I want to just say this up front, and again, I'm going to bypass some of the technical stuff, just kind of take my word at it. If you want to ask questions later, great. My reading is that verse 12 here does refer to believers, and that actually verses 13 through 15 is the judgment of non-believers, of non-Christians, unsaved people. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So verse 12, you have the dead, great and small, they're standing before the throne, and the dead were judged. And then verse 13, you get more dead people, lots of dead people here, uh, and they are coming out of the sea, it says. Uh, again, I, I want you to just take my word for this, the sea in the book of Revelation is always bad. It is never a good thing. Do a word study on the sea in Revelation. It's not a good place. So you have the first group of the dead brought before the throne. They're judged. Then you have a second group of the dead who come out of the sea and out of death in Hades. They're also judged. Two judgments. Verse 12 is dealing with this first group of believers. So I believe this 
judgment here in verse 12 is a judgment for Christians. This doesn't mean it's a judgment that leads to you losing your salvation or that you go to hell. What it does mean, though, understand this because this is real important, is that you will give an account for what you do in this life. We, we love to think that but by grace through faith means I can just kind of do whatever and, and the consequences don't matter. They don't matter for your salvation because, again, your salvation is purchased by Jesus' blood, not by anything you do or don't do. But it, it doesn't mean that you just skip through life and, and never have to answer for anything that you do. You will be accountable, in other words. You will give an account for what you do. Now, this may sound shocking to some of you. Don't take my word for it. Look at the rest of the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verses 27, talking about the second coming, the second advent. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You're going to be repaid according to your deeds. Romans chapter 14, verses 12, Paul says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul's speaking to Christians here. This is the church in Rome. And he's saying each of us, collectively, we will have to answer for what we've done in this life. He goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, talking about the, the second coming, the day of the Lord, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. Awesome. You don't know what the reward is? We don't know. Doesn't say. It's just going to be some kind of great reward. I'm here for it. I don't even need to know. If anyone's work is burned up, it says, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only as through fire. Paul is saying here, your works can be likened to a variety of different kinds of materials, all of which are going to pass through a fire. The good works are going to survive. They're going to be more like gold, silver, or precious stone. The bad works are more like straw, wood, and hay. They're going to be burned up. You yourself won't be burned up, but your bad works will be. Now, again, this is not talking about hell, Okay, we think fire, we think hell. This is a parable that is illustrating with imagery that's easy to connect to. There's some kind of judgment that's going to happen, and what you did is going to be on the table, and it's going to be evaluated. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Again, we, talking to Christians here, we will give an account. Do you get the sense, after reading some of these passages, that we should be prudent in our deeds? That the reality of Jesus' return and judgment that will follow should shape the way we live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves before other people? This is what Peter meant in 1 Peter 1.17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to what? Each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If you call God your father, it should shape the way you conduct your life. Why? Because you're going to give an account for it. You're going to answer for it. And so be aware of that. The second advent, the reality of it, calls us to live with patience in the face of suffering. It calls us to live with prudence in our deeds towards one another. And last, 
We must be persistent in our faith. We must be persistent in our faith. So understand, we should have patience as we wait. That's sort of a passive thing where we're, we're patiently enduring suffering. We should be making prudent choices. In other words, we should be evaluating the world around us, not just based on today, but in the future. But also, we should be not just passively waiting, but actively living it out. Revelation chapter 22, verse 10, John is speaking to this angelic messenger at this point, and in verse 10, it says, then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. In other words, whatever you're doing in eager anticipation of the return of Jesus, keep doing it. Be persistent in your faith. In other words, live it out on a day-to-day basis. Practically speaking, it means carrying out the commandments of Jesus. Whatever Jesus told us to do, be persistent in doing those things. So proclaim the resurrection. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, to take those disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, to teach them how to obey the commandments of Christ to love God with your heart, mind, soul, strength, with all of your being, with every part of you, to love your neighbor as yourself. To borrow the words from Revelation, it means to keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, to be persistent in those things, to be continually thinking on and doing them. It's, listen to me, it's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy to let the world get you down. It's easy to turn on the news and be filled with all kinds of angst. If you really want an anxiety attack, go to Twitter. (laughs) It will fill you with the deepest sense of hopelessness you can imagine. The world is an awful place. There is so much division between people and hatred for one another and sickness spiritually in the hearts and minds of so many people here. But listen to me. Jesus will come back. There will be a second advent. And because of that reality, we can live with the end in mind. Living with the end in mind then means being patient as we await his return, even in the face of persecution. It it may mean that things only get worse for us. That's what it seems like pretty clearly from the text. Things are only going to get worse for us, that you're going to be ridiculed more, that you're going to be silenced more, that you're going to be cast aside more. We have to accept that and live with patience in the midst of it. Living with the end in mind means living with prudence in our deeds towards other people, even those who wrong us, really especially those who wrong us. To be like Jesus actually means not only to suffer, but it means to pray for those who are creating the suffering for you. What did Jesus say on the cross? Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. He didn't hurl insults, he didn't hurl take backs or gotchas, right? Like it was a prayer recognizing they're spiritually dead, they're lost. So we have to be prudent in our deeds because we're gonna give an answer for them. Living with the end in mind means being persistent in proclaiming the resurrection to everyone that we know in order that other people might be added to the church as well. And I'm not just talking about city on a hill. 
I'm just talking about the church at large, that they may come into the faith, into the family of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And don't let that word trip you up. It doesn't mean what I'm doing right now. It just means proclaiming. How are they to hear without someone proclaiming to them? And how are they to proclaim unless they are sent? There are people in your life, family members, friends, people that you love who are living on borrowed time right now. They don't know Jesus. And judgment awaits them as well, except for it is the kind of judgment that leads to eternal hell. And the question is, how will they believe in Jesus if they never hear the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel unless someone tells it to them? Let me say this as plainly as I can to you. Stop wasting time and share it with them already. Go and share the hope that is in you. Talk to them about Jesus. Invite them to church. Love them when they are at their worst. Demonstrate to them the grace of God that you have received through Christ as well. Living with the end in mind is a game of patience, prudence, and persistence. And if we do this, then even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of things falling downward in a bad way, the church expands, the wildfire continues to grow that we talked about last week. This Advent series has come to an end. I hope it's been a blessing to you. It has been a joy for me. I I will tell you that uh, Christmas time and the New Year's is, every year it is so hectic. It is flooded with so many things that really at the end of the day don't matter at all. And it's been, I know for me personally, really great to be reminded each week of why we do all of this. Why do we celebrate? What's the true meaning behind all of this? We have some really exciting things happening in 2023. Right now is a a great time to be a part of City on a Hill. I'm very excited to share so many things with you in this next year. Uh, I'm thankful for every one of you who are here, uh, especially guests. I hope that you find this, uh, uh, this, this was probably not the most guest-friendly message for you to come to. <laughs> and I'm going to be completely upfront with you. I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> this is who we are. We love you. We love you at your worst. Come back and see us. Let me pray for us, and then we will dismiss. Father, thank you for the last six weeks, really, God, just to think back on the first coming of your son Jesus, the incarnation, the the way in which you worked things together for hundreds of years prophetically, all to bring those things into fulfillment on that night when the Lord was born. And God, knowing your track record, knowing how you bring to fulfillment your promises, we look with eager anticipation for the promises you have not yet brought to fulfillment, the second advent of the Lord. We wait, God, And, and our prayer this morning is that your spirit would give us patience, as we wait, even in the face of of difficulty, of trial, of suffering, that you would give us prudence in our decision-making, that that we would be mindful of the reality that every word we speak, every action we take, every choice we make, we'll give an account for. And ultimately, God, would you just increase our persistence to live out your your commandments, to proclaim the resurrection, to uh, love God and love neighbor, and to serve those around us in the name of your son. How we love you and we 
We eagerly await to see you face to face, but until then, God, we will continue to worship you and proclaim your kingdom to all that we encounter. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you all. We will see you next week. Regular services, 9 and 1030. See you then.